I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Architectural photography is, in fact, a product shot, usually meant to glorify or sell a structure. I consider myself a habitat photographer. In 1997, before the Getty Center opened its doors to the public, Robert Polidori photographed the galleries at the Getty Museum as they were being installed. In this episode, I speak with Polidori about this project, which began as an assignment from the New Yorker magazine. As part of the 20th anniversary of the Getty Center, the Getty Museum mounted an exhibition of 20 photographs by the acclaimed photographer Robert Polidori. Much admired for his beautiful and haunting depictions of human habitats, Polidori photographed the galleries of the Getty Museum in the fall of 1997, just weeks before they opened to the public. Originally an assignment from the New Yorker magazine, the series comprises 24 photographs that capture the curatorial process of installing works of art in museum galleries. Of the result, Polidori later said, They were attempts on my part to bring some phenomenological trace, as well as psychological depth, to a subject matter that is usually invisible, the portrait of the curatorial act. I spoke with Polidori in the museum galleries during the exhibition of his photographs. So we're standing in a gallery of photographs from a series of photographs that you, Robert, took in 1997, inspired by or documenting the final weeks of the inaugural installation of the J. Paul Getty Museum. Which was it? Were you inspired by these galleries or were you documenting the galleries? That's a good question. Um, well, I was sent to document it. Let's be clear that I was not at, at the origin of this project. I was sent here by the New Yorker magazine. I had been maybe on staff there for a year or two. And, you know, I wanted to please them. Um, as most of the images that ended up in the New Yorker magazine, they weren't looking for a suite of images. They were looking for one image. The, the text of, of the article dealt with um, Mr. Meyer, Richard Meyer, the architect, and a lot of the important people, the politics and money involved and the time involved in this big new project of a really new major American museum, which was not covered from an artistic point of view, but from a socio-economic political point of view. So, in fact, the picture that they ran is the one which we're looking at here of the lobby at 95% completion. Describe the, the picture for us. Um, the title of it is Entrance Hall, J. Paul Getty Museum. Well, this is one of the main lobby areas. A lot of service desks and, and other um, service accoutrements were not yet installed but the the inside shell was finished okay so, so let's say architecturally it's finished you, you get the gist of it but the l'aménagement is not yet there but we're looking at the main staircase swirling up from the floor against a backdrop of rectilinear forms of white supports whether vertical or horizontal yeah. Yes. With a light pouring down through the skylights above and picking up off the, the waxed floor below. 
and and in there there are some elements that you can see make you know that are still left over from the architectural practice elements that are left behind by workers so there's always a sense in your photographs even in something that seems to be a photograph of a finished building there's always a sense of something in process something that's not yet complete about the project correct i believe that these uh, two objects here at the bottom are probably electrical wiring that are coming up from underneath the floor to feed probably what would be a service desk now what were you doing at this time that attracted the new yorker to you in terms of this project I started to shoot in Versailles in 1983, and what you know took all my time and fascination there was what I would call a, a perpetual process of restoration. When you have a, an old structure with, say, a million and a half visitors per year, just their breathing uh, within the walls over years. Uh, necessitates a certain amount of restoration, which is like the proverbial uh, painting of the Golden Gate Bridge. Once they finish it, they have to start it again on the other side. And also, um, different curators have different views about which part of, of the museum's past history that they want to feature. Because in a place such as Versailles, which, you know, was um, a residence for 150 to 200 years and then was a, another kind of museum after, it had, it's been through several evolutions and lives and in remodelings from which they can choose to feature from. This, however, is not the case in a structure such as the Getty Complex because obviously it was a new structure. So they're setting it up the first time. It's its first incarnation. But what's similar between this and Versailles is that your photographs tell a story. Yes, but when I had access So this first lobby, you know, I wandered off and I saw what was going on in in some of the rooms that were not yet, where the museological scenographic dressing was not yet complete. And this fascinates me because I'm interested in seeing the intent of labors and it's very rare to see evidences of the curatorial act. Visitors usually just see the end product. So we should be clear for the listeners, so if you had returned from this shoot with just this picture of the architecture, that is, of the lobby of the Getty Museum, that would have been sufficient for the magazine. The New Yorker uh, uh, wasn't yes. interested in a project as you finally produced it, which is telling a story about the process of, of construction. That's so, yeah. Um, I guess because I have a unique kind of position that I was working for press. I have done press applications of my work, but, you know, I always considered myself an artist and as a photographer, I use the camera as a knowledge acquisition instrument. I've explored the world through the camera, uh, both for myself and hopefully for others who look at the pictures. And in fact, I want to also mention that when, when I take a photo, I do think of people 
who will look at them later. I'm not one of those artists who say, oh, I just do this for myself. I take them, of course, for myself, but mostly for other people in, in as much as I, I try to imagine the perceptual process which a viewer will go through while looking at them. There's always a sense of, of activity having paused for a moment, some activity that preceded the photograph and that will succeed the photograph, as if there's an event that uh, has taken place. So you're telling a story with these photographs, and it reminds me that you began your career as a filmmaker. Yes. There's a kind of still moment in the process of a film is in, the, in the, your photographs that reminds me of your early work. Yes. Well, the kind of filmmaking that I was inspired by is, is not Hollywood film, that kind of storytelling. You know, the, one of the main inspirations in my life visually or from the point of view of cinematography is the work of Michael Snow, a film called Wavelength, which deals with the notion of temporality, the subject of time itself, and being able to uh, extract from images traces and processes in time. How, how is that evident in this photograph titled Neoclassical Sculpture Gallery at the J. Paul Getty Museum? Uh, describe well, it for our, our listeners. Well, for example, um, if we look on the left side of this image where um, you see the, this, what, with this, a shelf, uh, you see at the bottom those pieces of foam. So one who knows would deduce that other crates or other works of art once um, sat on them, but now they're, they're discarded. So most probably these sculptures that are on top of the pedestal now were, were perhaps once sitting on top of these pieces of foam. You see uh, some, the piece of plastic wrapped around, uh, I guess that these are candelabras in, in the back where to keep the dust away, one can induce that soon later they will be removed. So elements of the picture point to events or suggest events in the past or the future. They, they look like they are uh, dancers, as if they've paused in a performance. They, they have a role to play as characters in a scene. Yes. They're also, and you haven't mentioned this yet, but they're also very beautiful color photographs in the way that you use color or you identify the, the potential of color to be an active agent in, in the photograph. Well, um, I learned, I guess, early on in just by practice. I loved and was able to not master, but I knew how to use the kinds of colors that one can get from color negative film. I love negative film because of color subtleties and, and its lack of contrast. I love images with low density contrast and high color contrast. I like to speak about these prints in particular, that these were done in an old analogical way. They're the last truly analogical prints that I was ever involved with. And by that, I mean 
They were made by hand without the use of any computer or digitizing device in the old color analog enlarger. And in the way that I've made prints since where I use film, I scan it, which means I digitize it, and I have much better color and contrast control by way of Photoshop. And then I output it to an imaging device, whether it be for paper, which is a, it has a, a, a color f- photographic emulsion, or to a digital inkjet process. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, the colors aren't bad, but in my new work, I have even more control, is, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, I try also not to use any artificial lighting. Um, I try to always use natural lighting. And one of the ways that I get the kinds of colors that I want was just a simple trick. I tend to slightly overexpose the color negative, which makes it a dense negative and simply make the exposure of the print, which necessitates a longer paper exposure. But this tends to give it a higher color saturation coefficient, which I liked. Okay, So that, that's how you get the colors that you have. But I, I guess I was trying to get you to talk about the way you use color to compose a picture. So the picture we're looking at of the neoclassical sculpture gallery in the museum, you mentioned about the foam on the left. Well, that's a baby blue yeah. form yes. against a wall, which is a kind of grayish blue. And the, the three walls that we see, all of the same painted color are because of the way the light falls in the room, different shades of this bluish gray against a caramel colored wall and caramel colored plinths and dark blackish brown uh, bronze sculpture. Uh, And then the way that the plastic sheets that are over the sculptures capture some of the light, reflect some of the light and give a kind of crystalline presence in the picture. And this great Caravage-esque light that comes in from the outside on a diagonal bright sharp light you compose by color as well as achieve your composition through the technical mastering of color as you've just described. Well, thank you for being so so eloquent about what I achieved here. But frankly, fate had it so. I mean, I didn't put these blue discarded foam pieces there. They happened to be there. There was no mise-en-scene done by me. Uh, I guess you get the luck that, that you search for. And I was... Lucky, uh, I thought, but by the way, it's a beautiful museum. The lighting is both natural and artificial light in this museum is well done by uh, someone who really thought it out. So it's full of possibilities right from the get-go. And I try to basically f- to recognize and frame such Occurrences. I, you know, like if it's there, I'm going to use it. Okay. Well, let's look at this picture because this is in a neighboring gallery and it's more fully installed and it's a brighter yellowish painted wall with dark wooden furniture with golden um, ornament on the furniture and with green turquoisey pillows on the stools around the furniture. Talk about this picture. Well, 
There's two things I like about this image. I like the composition, and I like what it shows. Because, uh, you know, it's called photography. The photo part, I always think it deals with the, the, see, the image itself, but the graphy part, which gets from graphics. You know, there's the, say, the aspect ratio of the frame itself. You know, there are many harmonic and disharmonic ways to inhabit that rectangle. So uh, any photographer will tell you that to make a pleasing image, you have to deal with uh, rules of compositional balance. This is what's called framing. You know, it goes under the general heading of framing. Um, so I like its framing, and I like what the picture shows with the, those sculptures in in those boxes, cardboard boxes, where they were brought sort of temporarily to later be placed. I like that sense that, that you know that it's a transitional moment that'll lead to others. Like Again, like with the earlier image, there's references to moments or days that preceded it, and and moments that will follow it. What I like about your framing of this part of the gallery, the scene that we're looking at, is that clearly the curator wanted to have a symmetrical composition to the object's placement in the gallery. So you've got these two stools with these pillows that are these turquoise green that I tried to describe just a moment ago. But you have a cabinet between them that is of darker color with gold uh, ornament on it, and that is rectilinear and cubic in certain aspects of it, but rectilinear in form, with these filigreed uh, candles uh, ornaments uh, above on the wall, one on each side, framing a picture that is itself a rectangle, slightly rectangular, just like the cubic form of the furniture beneath it, and has a similar set of tonality of the dark and the gold against it. So they've made this composition, but you've come and seen something else, which is something coming in from the left-hand side that breaks up. You could have repeated the composition of the curator, but you've added something to it. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that I've tried to refer to what precede and succeeds it, but at the same time, I want to have references to that it's impossible to take a picture of the whole world, or if you did, you wouldn't see that much. So I try to have references always to point out that this is a subpart of the whole and references to the fact that it continues on, on one side or another. I do the same thing like in other images with doorways or windows that are, are looking towards another room that, um, to make it clear that this is part of the world, part of reality, but in fact a sub-part of a larger continuum. There's a sense, we mentioned it earlier, but there's a sense of storytelling about these photographs. Uh, and clearly, that's related to the prior project, the previous ongoing project to this one, where we, we mentioned Versailles. Afterwards, there was also Cuba, Havana, uh, and then there was uh, in New Orleans, post-Katrina. So you're very interested in how spaces, once inhabited by individuals, now uh, seen through uh, other means after some sort of event has occurred, the storytelling that's involved in that. Yeah. Many times, or especially earlier in my career, I was referred to as an architectural photographer. It's certainly true that I photographed a lot of architecture and interiors. But for me, 
Architectural photography is in fact a product shot, usually meant to glorify or sell a structure. I consider myself a habitat photographer or a photographer that specializes in habitat. And what I mean by that is how a space is used and 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 have traces of human interventions human dwelling and let's say generally the psychological aspect of a room a long time ago i came up with this saying that um Rooms are both metaphors and catalysts for states of being and perhaps are a window to the soul. Now, I don't like mention the window to the soul as much anymore. But um, what I'm interested in rooms is the way that people put in rooms, let's say, it, speaking of Cuba, because now we're, we're speaking here of private dwellings, people tend to put on walls who they think they are or who they want to be. So in a Freudian sense, it's close to the notion of what Freud called the superego. And for me, to photograph such interiors is a way of doing portraiture without the human being actually being present. But how much do you really know of an individual's personal values simply by looking at their face? You know, somewhat. But by seeing what they put on the walls of their home, you know about what they value. So it's a psychological portraiture of habitation. There's an element of time that's important to these photographs, even in photographs in which there are no people or a very little activity going on, except the natural activity of the light that falls into the room. Let's look at this photograph over here titled European Painting 1850-1900 Gallery, J. Paul Getty Museum. It's a photograph from one of the galleries of the European painting, and this in particular in the 19th century. And light has come through the skylight above in such a way as to fall onto the painting and the floor beneath the skylight with these oddly dramatic shafts of light. Obviously, this would be have been changed before the opening of the galleries because you wouldn't want this light to interfere in the painting, but you captured the drama of this light falling into the room. When I walked into this situation, okay, I thought, subjectively speaking, I thought it was beautiful. For me, okay, I said, wow, man, this is really California, because, you know, I was living in, in, in New York there. There's often sunny days in, in New York, but, you know, few, like in, in uh, high-rises and stuff, you usually don't have this sort of uh, streaming Venetian blinds lighting effect, okay? And that, for me, it felt like California, okay? I loved it. And I was just taking it. I didn't really think about the anomaly moment that it actually was. Um, suddenly, some people came and they were upset that I was taking the picture because this is a, a, an example of, of what was not supposed to happen. As we mentioned earlier, these images were taken before the official opening of the museum and the louvered system above the room is calibrated, they told me, by timers and stuff with the, the 
the movement of the sun to prohibit um, sunlight from falling on the paintings with the UV um, properties that could damage them. So they were in the process of fixing it, and I took it before it was really tweaked up. So... um, uh, this is a moment which was not supposed to happen. But, but it has an element of uh, delight in it. There's a kind of insertion into this room-controlled environment of the natural element of the sun outside and the kind of idiosyncrasy of that. Yes. And purely, again, from a subjective point of view, those light rays streaks that uh, are projected on the red wall, subjectively speaking, I find them very beautiful, and it makes the wall look like certain American color field paintings, which is one of the periods of American art that I appreciate highly. The picture that the light is falling on is a portrait of a young, beautiful woman, and there's a sense that she is being bathed by the light within the painting, but the light external to the painting as well. Were you aware of that kind of wit and play, or was that just a coincidence you were really more interested in the light falling through oh, the skylight well, itself? No, it, it, I, I liked how it also fell on the painting, and I thought that it was harmonious with it. I would say that, generally speaking, I try to be indifferent to beauty or ugliness in, in my first approach to a composition. But I don't try to make anything ugly, and I don't try to, to over-beautify anything. Though people say I always make beautiful photos, so I guess I mostly beautify, or, uh, or I have a, a visceral reaction to, uh, to it, so I choose it. But... I thought this was a privileged moment, and for me, it was sort of the climax of that shoot. I knew they were going to take that one, the photo of the entrance hall that we first looked at, and I took it for them. This one I took for me, um, and frankly, like you know, if I would have a big house and you know, and I would look at my own work, if I was able to do that, uh, I'd have this one. Okay, and also like the, the horizontal version too, I like. I took two shots of it. In the horizontal, I put on the cover on the book. So the New Yorker was interested in a picture. You produced more than a dozen such pictures. Did you conceive at the time of this shoot of the museum that it was going to be a portfolio of photographs or a group of photographs? Actually, I think the, the New Yorker ran two images, but I always would concentrate on having one because most of the time they only have room for, for one and in all fairness you know it's a budgetary thing it's the amount of ads that they have so the amounts of pages so a lot of these types of decisions are dictated even to them even at times they would want to they don't have the room okay or the budget it's hard thing to put a magazine together it's not one man's decision it's it's a machine of decisions that come together but uh the way i looked at it is that you know i'm here i just go with what the subject dictates to me the images jump out at me and I just go and take them because I know soon they'll be gone. Might as well take them because if I don't, 
they won't exist. But as soon as you were here and seeing that there was potential for more, did you conceive of this to be a suite of photographs that would be identifiable as the Getty photographs? No, that came later. But, you know, I just don't hang around doing nothing. I'm here, and I got the permission that I wanted to shoot in the insides. I just went with it because I found it interesting. I like the subject. I, I do one thing at a time. You know, after the process, I look at the contact sheets. You know, I think about it for a while. And I thought, yes, that it would be um, a great suite of images. And I went ahead and had this portfolio made. I wasn't sure exactly for whom or what. I think I must have had an idea that it would be a great idea to maybe introduce them to the Getty or sell it to them, hint, hint, maybe. But uh, nothing was like really sure. And uh, often I don't really think that commercially, strategically. I just go with it. What's it like to come back now, 20 years later, to see the Getty installed and mature after its 20 years of installation? Um, Well, I'll say one thing. It aged well. It looked like it could have been built three or four or five years ago. It's in very good shape. But I know that Richard Meyer has that reputation as an architect. I know, like, reading the article that, you know, they didn't skimp on it. Like on anything, it had a sizable budget and it was made for a long time sort of posterity. As far as the interiors go, um, I thought it was handsome. I feel that the harmonics of the period rooms, if that's what you call them, are are good proportions. I like those those lighting wells. I like the kind of light that it brings in. So um, what can I say? I, it's, it's a handsome museum. Yeah. And what about the photographs? Have they worn well with you? Yeah, I think so. Uh, they hold my interest. I'm not ashamed of them because, you know, not every subject is as worthy as another. But for me, images of museums that show the museological process are more personally interesting to my taste. So for me, they age well. I like them. What are you working on now? Well, you know, three or four things. I tend to work on many projects at the same time because it takes a long time to, to, to get stuff done, to get the permissions, to get financing. So um, we spoke earlier of Cuba. You know, most of the pictures in my book on Havana, which came out in 2001, were taken from 1997 through 2001. However, uh, last year, February of 2017, I went back to Havana with the express intention of revisiting exactly the same places and spaces that I had photographed 20 years earlier. So that's an ongoing project. Two, I've been shooting a lot in Naples, uh, abandoned churches, of which there are many there. And what interests me in that project is a sort of a a psychological view of what I call devotion abandoned. Uh, There's a lot of altars and personal altars of the remnants of people's bodies, like their bones with their names, and that, you know, even the descendants who would go and give reverence 
to the, the remnants of their ancestors, even they're gone. But the bones remain, and they made these little kind of altars that are dedicated to the remain of loved ones. Three, since 96, another project that I've been working on are auto-constructed cities, that is, dwellings made by inhabitants without any architects. So they're highly individualized, non-modular living structures. Because I'm interested in habitat, but I look at buildings or accumulation of buildings as a kind of nesting activity. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time this morning. And the Getty's very pleased and honored to be in your oeuvre among your photographs. So we thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. And I found like being interviewed by you really a pleasurable thing, like you're a really nice person. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, so thank you very much. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>